One of my favorite compliments a customer ever told me was like, you guys aren't really in like the access restriction game. You're really in the like granting people access game, which I think is a different way than a lot of security companies approach their world. They're all about restricting things. It's different when you're a startup, you're trying to like acquire one new customer every day versus when you go into a thing that already has thousands and thousands of customers. You have to balance your overall growth of your company. You're not going to survive and win off one customer. You know, it could be Google is your first customer. It just doesn't matter. Like, you need other people. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of Enterprise Ready, we're speaking with Paul Korna, the CTO and co-founder of ScaleFT, which was acquired by Okta not too long ago. Paul likes to say that ScaleFT is in the business of granting people and machines access to the systems and endpoints they should be reaching. We get some backstory on the company's founding, and we focus on the zero-trust concepts that ScaleFT evangelized that have their roots in a white paper published by Google that defined a new model for enterprise security called BeyondCorp. We dive pretty deep into why BeyondCorp is needed, including the previous status quo, things like access control lists and VPNs. It gets quite technical, but I found it to be a super interesting conversation, and hopefully you will too. Finally, we wrap up with a discussion of what it's like to integrate into a large vendor's existing go-to-market process. All right, here we go. All right. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining. Uh, Thanks, Grant. Great to be here. Cool. So... As we get started, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background and kind of how you got into enterprise software. Sure. I've kind of always been in infrastructure, whether that was more operations side or more making software. And I had a long, long background, kind of an open source and a kind of the Apache Software Foundation. And it was probably almost 10 years ago now, I got involved in this startup called CloudKick, which uh, was a first employee. And it kind of turned into a enterprise cloud monitoring uh, system. And that was kind of my first exposure in a product company making enterprise software versus just working on infrastructure. Great. So after CloudKick, what did you get into? Uh, so CloudKick was actually acquired by Rackspace. You know, at the time, it was Rackspace was trying to build out its OpenStack cloud. Um, and so we really turned into kind of one of the, the teams there that was building many different cloud products for enterprise customers. And so that was a, a really good experience where I worked in a mix of product development, product ownership, and corporate strategy for how we went from kind of a, you know, Rackspace's origins as a managed hosting company to trying to beat Amazon at, at building a public cloud. And so there's a lot of experiences there that kind of informed how I think about enterprise software. Cool. So after CloudKick got acquired, you stayed at Rackspace a couple of years, and then was your next step was that was that ScaleFT? Yeah. So I was actually stayed at Rackspace almost five years, uh, and then I um, founded uh, ScaleFT with a, a group of friends who um, actually all at the time worked at Rackspace, and uh, we kind of started ScaleFT based out of our kind of experiences at Rackspace around security, around you know how 
DevOps teams are operating in clouds, um, how do you make that more secure was kind of our initial nugget. And we, we kind of took our experiences from Rackspace, not all which we can talk about because no one likes to talk about your stuff getting hacked, but kind of how do you address that in a way that DevOps teams don't hate. Cool. And then the outcome at, at ScaleFT was? Uh, yeah, we were acquired by Okta back in July of this year, which was a pretty uh, fast and fun ride. And it really, you know, through ScaleFT, we started really marketing uh, the Beyond Corp approach. And I think it's really awesome. We ended up at Okta, where that kind of approach is like heavily believed in as well. Uh, it's kind of a cornerstone of modern security. Cool. And so now you're kind of scaling out your product within the Okta customer base and beyond. Yep. It's all about uh, scale, go-to-market scale, uh, product scale, security, compliance. Like It's a whole different level. It's different when you're a startup. You're trying to like acquire one new customer every day you know, versus when you go into a thing that already has thousands and thousands of customers. You need to scale even faster than you thought you had to before that. Yeah, that makes total sense. Okay, so now I want to dive back into some parts of the story. First, I think we should just talk about the foundational concepts behind ScaleFT and sort of like tell a little bit more of that founding story, like how you started going to market, you started finding some early customer signs, like just talk about the early days of, of ScaleFT. Yeah, so ScaleFT, we started with server access. So one of the things we saw um, in our previous jobs was you know when a security incident happened, it kind of like lingered a long time, a lot of times. Like someone would break in using maybe something creative, maybe something really silly, but then their goal was always to pretty much always steal a credential so that then they could stay inside the network, right? Uh, it's way better to steal someone's SSH key or steal their password and then keep logging into things as that person than to always using a zero a day or always um, trying to find some exploit in some PHP web app. And so kind of the lesson we were first tackling is if, you know, if you're familiar with kind of privileged access management as a category, it's a kind of a legacy category that says, hey, we're going to take all these secrets and put them in a vault, uh, and then we'll rotate them once a day. And that, that one, that just didn't work in cloud environments. Two, it wasn't very effective. And three, like how you even authenticated that thing was often your static password. And so we kind of said, hey, how can we make an access management product for DevOps people where they enjoyed using it, where it was kind of built into their workflows. Like we didn't want to break Ansible from working, you know, but every other product out there at the time, like you couldn't plug it into Ansible. Like that was like our first requirement was all the DevOps tools I'm using, they have to work. And so we kind of brought kind of a meet people where they are thesis and make their environments safer and more secure. Okay. So the founding principle was basically that the world has changed. Now we use automation and DevOps. A lot of the security tooling around, you know, privileged access management just aren't designed to work in that modern environment. What can we build that sort of understands that paradigm shift and solves this problem in a modern context? Yeah. And that's how we kind of enter the market. You know, we we said, hey, you have DevOps teams. They're on cloud machines. They're on on-prem machines, but they're starting to use automation. How can you do that in a way that is secure? in a way that supports them instead of kind of hammering them down and saying you can't use automation, which is a big gap in how the PAM market was approaching it. And it was kind of through that, when you start like breaking down, like what is access management? One of my favorite compliments a customer ever told me was like, you guys aren't really in like the access restriction game. You're really in the like 
granting people access game. Like you're helping people be successful and get into things, you know, which I think is a, a different way than a lot of security companies uh, approach their world. They're all about restricting things. And, and that kind of was where we cut into some of the Beyondcore concepts of like, you know, by default, you don't have any permissions. You upgrade people, you give them temporary grants of permissions, right? That is like one of our building blocks. We, try to, we were building that in our product even before we kind of like adopted a lot of the Beyondcore monikers. Okay, yeah. So you start this company, you are entering the market, probably like a handful of early customers, maybe friendly folks that you're talking to that are using your product and giving you feedback in, in, the, in the first year. Is that right? Well, we kind of hit a bump in the road pretty early. We got a large-scale, multi-million-dollar enterprise deal in our first six months, and um, you know we only had the four founders at the time when, we, when this deal kind of floated into us. And you know it's one of those deals that your you know friends and advisors that's kind of a split vote. Like some people were like, "Don't take it; it'll distract you from building a at-scale, you know, repeatable business model." Other people were like, "Take it; it's money," you know. <laughs> and uh, we ended up taking it, and 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 we spent almost a year kind of working off the debt from that, but it let us do so much more, you know? Like, it's a balance. I would vote to take the money as well. Yes, take the money, because otherwise you have, you know, we had seed money at the time. We would have just ran out of money. Yeah, okay, so you got this early big customer. Can you share who that was? It, just... uh, it was actually Rackspace. Oh, okay. That makes sense. It, it, it turns out when you have a relationship with a company and you've done great work there and, you know, you go off to solve a problem that was a problem for you there, they can be an early customer. Makes total sense. Yeah. Although, I mean, it, I, I think it was an arm's length relationship. Like, we went away for six months and then they said, oh, wait, what are you guys actually doing? This is really helpful. Can we be your first customer? So, I think this is a somewhat common thing that happens for enterprise software companies, especially where people leave and then they've seen this problem and they're like, this is more than just a single company. We should solve this. But the context that you're bringing into that is often the problem that you solved from, you know, you saw at your previous role. So you end up building a pretty well tailored solution for that first customer. Yep. And then the challenge is, of course, you have to go get a thousand other customers. I mean, this is the the advisor side of this. Like, if I was consulting someone in a similar situation, it's like you have to balance your overall growth of your company, right? Like, you're not going to survive and win off one customer, no matter how big they are. Right. You know, it could be Google uses your first customer. It just doesn't matter. Like, you need other people. So, it's a balance for sure. Also, in the world of like venture funded companies, Getting a multi-million dollar deal means that you need to like get three multi-million dollar deals the following year in order to still triple yeah. and have the growth that you want to have. So, yeah, many lessons there. I think. I mean, even just describing optics there on like what is recurring revenue, what is non-recurring. Like, there's a whole separate podcast about discussing large enterprise deals with VCs because a lot of it's recurring, but some of it is kind of non-recurring. You know, like that relationship with your customer is important to figure out because. You know their needs are going to change over years, and you don't want to have a weird pricing relationship with them too. Yeah, so setting up some amount of non-recurring revenue early, which is kind of professional services, custom work that you might be doing, integration, implementation, and then having a recurring fee on top of that. Yep. Okay. You kind of discussed before this. You mentioned it a couple times Beyond Corp, right? So yeah, for those uninitiated, what is Beyond Corp, and kind of describe this concept, where it came from. So I think. Before we describe BeyondCorp, we have to describe the like last thirty years of security. Yeah, it's a good idea. What what problem was BeyondCorp solving? Maybe <laughs> first, Not just yeah. Yeah, I mean, the context of this is really a lot of security was built around the network, 
for a very, very long time. I mean, it's like Cisco has Cisco certified network associates and engineers and security engineers, and their entire job uh, in many companies is literally like configuring network ACLs. Like, and there's processes and products and like a whole ecosystem around, hey, I'm getting traffic from one place identified via IP. And I want to whitelist it or blacklist it or analyze it. And you know, that worked okay when you had kind of like flat enterprise networks where like one team could put a ticket in and approve that you're adding a web server somewhere and then like add a whitelist. Like if you have a top-down perfect vision of the world, it's an okay architecture. What's challenging is when your uh, employees don't work in the office, when your apps are hosted in random places. When your organization is so big that it's hard to exchange like information about, hey, where did that web server go? Did its IP address move last week? I don't know. Like those are kind of the problems that push you towards a new model, right? And I believe I would describe it as a model that focuses kind of on layer seven attributes, who is accessing what, and then finding ways at an architectural level to authenticate, authorize, and encrypt that in a way that has a good user experience, right? And so kind of in the late um, 2008, 2009, kind of one of the triggers of this is uh, Google was hacked by the Chinese government. Operational Roar, there's a whole Wikipedia page about it. Supposedly hacked. Supposedly hacked, <laughs> right. Sorry, everything's uh, alleged. Yeah. Although they, they did write a pretty pointed blog post and the Wall Street Journal reported on it. But yeah, Rackspace was also involved in that uh, supposed incident. And like inside Rackspace at the time, the path taken was very different. It was a, hey, we're just going to put firewalls everywhere. We're going to put VPNs in front of everything. We're going to like really harden our network-centric approach to security. And what that really led to, though, was like, as an employee, my user experience was terrible. We actually were in situations where like we had people working on uh, open source projects, like this is a full-time job, like an OpenStack. And from the office, we egress-filtered like GitHub. Like because we were worried about people exfiltrating traffic to GitHub, and you know, like if that's your job to work on GitHub, you can't do your job anymore. But we did that for a good reason. We we're trying to stop an attack, but it was very disconnected because our our network view of the world was we didn't have any other hammers. We just literally had a like ban port twenty two was a hammer we had, and so there was this big you know uh, operation where uh, Chinese government. And and it's like Google. They said, "Hey, you know, one, never let this happen again. Like this is not acceptable. Two, we need to kind of rethink this from the ground up, right? Uh, how do you actually go about doing access management in a modern way, in a scalable way, where you know disparate teams can make their app, sh- ship to a bunch of employees, and not have to open a ticket with central IT to like change an ACL somewhere, right? Like, how do you eliminate things like VPNs that are very clunky?" Right? Like they have a bad user experience. Your VPN drops every day, every hour, every minute, and you're frustrated by it. So what's an ACL, first of all? Uh, access control list, right? It's so Great. Uh, if you're coming from 10.00.1, you're let in. If you're coming from 192 to 168.2.1, you're not let in. And you would assign people ports. Like when, so when you plug into a port in the office, right? You get an IP address. Like a physical Ethernet port. Yeah, like a physical Ethernet port. You would get a specific IP address that you're an engineering. An engineer is allowed to go you know, to this set of addresses. But if, you know, if someone from accounting plugged into that port, they might be able to access all the engineering stuff. Right? Like that's 
you know, a decade ago, 15 years ago, that's where the world was in a lot of, of internal security was like, it's physical, it's based on where you are, like your IP address determines all your access. And you could see that like doesn't work very well, right? Like pretty quickly. Explain to me the, the like why would that have ever worked really well? <laughs> it worked in a model where like you come into the office to your desktop computer and you're accessing, you know, four servers that are two floors down. Okay. But that is like literally the Cisco reference architecture for how an office should be set up for 30 years, right? Like that's how your office is supposed to work. And so this is before those servers were exposed on the internet. They were only exposed, like you could only access them if you were, you know, at work, in that at your desk. Yeah, at, the, at your desk. And it's it's probably similar to like you know maybe that's how what did they used to call those thin clients, right? Used to work. Yeah, thin client with a a, a mainframe sitting somewhere else. Like yeah, but like it's sitting somewhere on your premises in your environment yep. that you could like secure the access to from a physical perspective. You had it in a closet with a lock on it and a cage with a lock on it. Like you know you had to use a key to get into that office and like so they were physically securing all of the resources and to secure you know who can access. That server from inside the building, like, you know, everyone can plug in Ethernet. So, like, let's just lock it down to these IP addresses and we'll use an access control list in order to specify who can access it. And that is like how we'll determine access controls. Yeah. And in fact, your like PCI audit will pass because, like, that's good. Still today, you know, it'll probably like, pass, right? Like it would still pass yeah. with that exact same architecture. Yeah. Like, and despite the you know the many differences, it's like, well, that's the PCI architecture. So yeah, and look, so obviously things change, right? Like employees use Wi-Fi, employees work at Starbucks, like your servers are now on Amazon. And so, like for a while, I'm guessing people were like remoting into their desktop computer, and this is like the you know. What, what like go to my PC and these other technologies yeah. they would use and like, so you're basically like somehow getting access to your PC remotely and that's what you did and then eventually they created VPNs right so even better than that, I mean there's a whole market category called VDI which is like literally virtual desktops oh okay like yes there are products that do exactly what you're saying because it's so we're locked into the security architecture we couldn't like Fix the security architecture. Instead, we gave people virtual desktops and VPNs to like live in the old architecture. Yeah. So I mean, eventually the VPN was like probably a, like this is better than you know remoting into a specific desktop, right? Now you could actually use your same laptop and like use a you know a proxy into the <laughs> overall network, right? Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a huge advancement. What an improvement, right? <laughs> well, what's funny about VPNs is like, look, there are some companies who do a very, very good job of maybe managing the VPN. Uh, but for a lot of companies, it's kind of a carte blanche access mechanism, right? Like you get in the VPN, you can access every app, right? Even if you know you really only want to access the wiki like from home once in a while, right? Like the, the VPN became kind of a, a one-place hammer. You're like, well, we're gonna put two-factor on the VPN, or we're gonna do X at the VPN layer. But then the VPN really only understood you know, layer three, layer four protocols. Yeah, I, I was when I first read the Beyond Corp paper, I was actually confused. I was like, wait, people just put these services on like their internal networks and then don't put any authentication in front of them and you just need access to the network. So like all the communication is unauthenticated and then you can access it from a VPN, which you use as your authentication layer. I was like, 
that doesn't seem good, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and if you look at incidents, security incidents, over the last you know ten or fifteen years, like it's definitely not good, right? Like from an attacker's perspective, from a threat model perspective, it's open season, because the other thing is, once you're in the network, you lose identity actually. Right, like when you make a request to the wiki, the wiki doesn't know who you are, right? So from an attacker's point of view, it's a huge advantage. The request to the wiki was never authenticated and authorized to go to the wiki. It was just that like some laptop got on the VPN. Right. So oh, it's in this trusted network, and now I can access it. And like what it's doing, you don't really know. You just know that it's like that's right doing stuff inside the VPN. Yep. And so then, like, by the way, I mean, because you had this architecture, people built products to try to make that better. You have a whole generation of network packet inspectors, right? Like, there's a whole category of products where their goal is to, like, let's look at those packets that the VPN can't understand and try to understand them, right? Like, this is what I'm trying to articulate is like the old architecture, we just kept trying to patch it. Like, we said, okay, we're going to start with network ACLs. And every time there's something that doesn't work well about that, we're going to invent a new product category like VPNs or VDI or deep packet inspection to try to like make it so we can keep using network ACLs. Yeah, I mean, because you have a system set up and then you like realize there's a problem. So you like try to solve each of those problems incrementally as they come along rather than like, Questioning the entire system, right? Because yep. that sounds expensive and complicated in like a project that no individual sane person at a company is going to undertake as like a, oh yeah, I'm gonna totally remove everything that we've ever done in this space and like invent something new. Yep. But that's the basis of a movement, right? Is like a generational shift in technology. I mean, eventually, like, you know, it sounds like what happened was at Google. This thing like got so bad, and they realized that like the current system was so fallible and terrible that it was unsavable. And so this like big you know Project Aurora is that what it was called? Uh, Operation Aurora. Operation the, Aurora. Right? Yeah, yeah. Comes and like kind of exposes this, and like everyone's like, well, we can't protect against it in our current model. Like we're just not there. Yep. So let's let's throw it all away and start. Right. And, and Google wasn't the only one to come to that conclusion. It's just when you're Google, you're able to put a large number of engineers and security people on it for a while. And then a few years later, like after it works, you can write a white paper about how awesome it is. Yeah, they don't, they don't write white papers about the ones that didn't work. That's right. That's you know? right. <laughs> oh, yeah. You only read the white papers about the, the projects that went really well. That's right. And, and look, and, and if you look at um, like even like Forrester wrote some analyst papers back in 2010 uh, where they coined the word zero trust. You know, Beyond Corp was the Google project name for the internal development of the system, and kind of zero trust was kind of the broader industry-wide message around like that whole network perimeter thing. Like you can't base trust decisions based on that. Yeah, I think we eventually started to refer to it as like what hardened shell GUI center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Castles, moats, all these analogies. They really actually describe how it fails, right? Mm-hmm. Like everyone understands a castle has a moat, and once you're through the moat. Like everything's over. But, like, I also do think whenever you're looking at these enterprise problems, it's important to go back to the beginning and be like, look, this made sense. Like, this was fine. It, it, it was like totally rational. Like, you're, you're not dumb people for having thought that this was a good solution to the problem at some point. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, constraints changed. Yeah, exactly. Right? Constraints changed, but like, okay, now we know that. Like, let's try to invent the better solution. Let's just acknowledge that it's not going to work. It's not like get all defensive and try to be like, oh no, but that's the what we know and we have to stick with it. And let's just like let's change. I, I mean, I, I love your perspective, but the challenge is, and even if it is a startup trying to educate people around these space, like, you know, Beyondcorp to a uh, you know a group of people that are Cisco certified is not an amenable like alternative. They're like. But then I won't have a Cisco firewall to administrator. You know, like I'm not trying to take away their jobs, but in some ways I am. No, you're just trying to get them beyond corp certified. Right. That's right. We're working you know, on that. The, I, I guess my perspective is just that everything that's happening, like we just have to be more welcoming to change and acknowledge that change is going to happen. Yep. And be willing to like look at our current systems and be like, does that still make sense? Like, let's question everything, right? And if it doesn't, let's like build something that does or look for a solution that solves this today. Yep. Okay, so let's dive into what like what is beyond corp, right? Like, it's like so you know, we, <laughs> I think we've gotten pretty good at what the problem is and why it made sense. Like, let's talk about what the solution is. So I, I tend to think of taking it from a layer seven approach first. So uh, what are the things we want to accomplish at a layer seven? You know, authentication, authorization, encryption, like all the things you expect when you go to even like a consumer website. It's like it's encrypted. You know, like when I log into my bank, they knew who I am and I'm authorized to only mess with my bank account. Right. And so, how do you take those kind of concerns and make them something that it can be kind of platformized? Right. So that it's not up to every app. To implement them themselves, right? So the traditional enterprise stack would be like if I'm deploying a new enterprise app, I put in my own load balancer, my own firewall, my own WAF, I build all the ACLs myself, I build a custom SAML integration if I'm lucky, or I back into some LDAP server. We want to take that whole stack and make it kind of a, a platform feature, right? Like, I mean, you could describe it almost as building all those features into the load balancer. And that was like, I would say like a big chunk of Beyond Corp. That's kind of that access proxy. Yeah, and but I think a lot of the other parts are kind of more implementation detail of like of like how for you as a company do you manage devices or how do you assert trust about different factors. But like that is the core bit that I think is actually the thing you need to like repeat first. Is like how do you try to consistently implement authentication, authorization, and encryption? Right, it's like a, it's like how do you make your front door like a really good front door? Even though we're you know trying to avoid analogies about castles and front doors, like try to almost productize that little component, and then around that you see like Google did a lot of work on what people are calling like device trust, right? Like can I trust that this MacBook Pro is up to date and patched and all these other things? But I tend to view those as really uh, factors. For authentication and authorization, they're inputs to your decision. Just like a U2F key is a good factor. Maybe a Chromebook having its own TPM is a good factor. But those are really inputs to authentication and authorization. Okay, so define authentication versus authorization for so everyone has the same context. Well, part of the problem with that is I'm a kind of a contrarian, I think, on, on the view of authentication. So authentication in theory, it, like a, a almost Wikipedia definition, I think, would be like it's identifying who you are, that you are Grant. And you know, Grant has this job and this title. It's kind of like almost a directory lookup, right? It's like, what are the things about you? 
And, and it's really just trying to establish that, like who you are. And then authorization is, are you allowed to do something? Right. And, and that's a traditional split of kind of auth N and auth Z is, is first you just focus on who someone is and then you focus on can they be allowed in. The reason those, I'm a contrarian on those is like authentication is not absolute anymore. Right. Like the factors that we use to determine who you are are relative. Right. Like you remembering a password, a password you share with 400 other websites is a very bad authenticator. Right. Like, any one of those 400 websites can take your password and use it again. A U2F key is a pretty good authenticator, right? It is cryptographically secure. It's a little device. You know, unless someone steals your keychain and, and also knows your username and your password, like that's a much better authenticator. So I, I tend to think of authentication as kind of relative, like there, there's different kind of almost levels to it. But that, in a traditional sense, would be how you describe authorization, right? Is that MFA traditionally is thought of as an authorization step. Like you need MFA to access a site is like an authorization statement when it's really asserting that your authentication is stronger. So I think they're actually highly intertwined. And if you look at how people write authorization rules, they're often making assertions about how good the authentication was. Oh, interesting. Okay. So just to add to the confusion, they're even more intertwined than I think most people think of them because some people think about them interchangeably, right? Right. In, in most of the world, like authentication and authorization, like, yeah, you could use one word instead of the other. In this context, they generally mean different things. But in your perspective, authentication is a spectrum. Yeah. Right. And how much you want to trust that spectrum is an authorization decision, right? Like, uh, I'll let you into the phone directory for the company. You know, even if you know you just know your password, but I'll only let you into the wiki if you MFA or if you have a, a U2F key or your boss approves to let you into some finance app. Like those are attestations of identity, really, in the traditional sense. All right. I mean, it, it kind of touches on a few points around, you know, that this is a complex topic and authorization and authentication are kind of maybe there's not a totally defined world where everyone like thinks they mean the same thing. Oh, well, I mean there is in the canonical Wikipedia sense. Okay. Right? Like like clearly authentication is just who you are. I just think the one of the things you really kind of understand, I think the Beyond Corp thesis and, and kind of where we came from from network identity. Like network identity used to mean your source IP. That was like a good enough identifier. That was your authn is like you came from an IP address. And what I'm trying to say is password is your authn factor. Is flawed. Like most people would agree today, password authentication is flawed, right? And we're like, well, U2F's better. Well, today it's better. I, I don't know if it's going to be better in 30 years. I hope it's better in 30 years, right? Like these factors are changing continuously based on our trust levels of them. And that is a, in traditional sense, an authorization point of view. Okay. I, I like that from a timescale perspective. It's like, look, if we look at everything, if we look at even authentication as an authorization, that's like a Time-oriented and delineated piece. Then we understand that, like that, while that is the strongest form today, it might not be the strongest form in thirty years. Right. And, okay. So let's go back to just the Beyond Corp. Like, what does the end-to-end experience look like on Beyond Corp? So I think we understand the what the end-to-end is for network-based, you know, ACLs and all that. It's like what just describe the end-to-end on on a Beyond Corp or zero trust system. So. From my point of view, the the end-to-end is, as a user, I go to a resource, whether that's a web app or something else, and kind of transparently to me, 
a bunch of magic happens, and then I'm logged in. And that thing that I'm logged into, um, whether it's the wiki or, or some other app, knows about me and knows what I should have access to. And that connection uh, is encrypted and safe and audited. I mean, that's the end-to-end experience. I mean, it's really describing almost like, what is it like to log into a SaaS app that has SSO set up? Like, it's pretty close to that, and in some cases you can even make it better than that. You can actually get rid of a lot of even prompts for people, like, re-enter your SSO password, right? Like, we can actually eliminate a lot of that. So I think of it from an end-user perspective. It's very crisp. It's like, I literally just go to whatever I want to go to, and I'm logged in. So there's, there's no VPN, right? No, yeah. I open Chrome. I mean, the, the Googler point of view would be like, Chrome is the basis of all this. But uh, yeah, so you open your browser and you go somewhere. And now, if you're not trusted because you don't meet the access policies, and like from a, from a um, security te- team point of view, from an internal engineering point of view, the viewpoint is very different. But from, I'm just trying to say from a user point of view, it's a very clean, crisp experience. It's either you're, you're in, or if you're not allowed in, we try, at least in our product, to tell you why. Right? Like, you weren't allowed in because you know, your OS is not up to date anymore. You know, Apple came out with a patch five days ago, and you haven't patched yet. Like, if you want to self-remediate that, we'll help you do that. Some things you can't self-remediate, you need to go down to the help desk, and they'll you know, fix your laptop for you. Okay, so... That makes sense from the end user perspective. It's a seamless way to authenticate, and then the app knows who you are, so it can like give you access, and you know who's doing what in your internal applications. Yep. But you know, as like product folks, like what does it look like on the implementation side? What's happening? Yeah. You know, what's the what are the, what are the details in this? So yeah, generally you have kind of a, a you know in the traditional world you use like a, a policy enforcement point. Uh, an access proxy. It's somewhere that you're centralizing control. Like you're treating it almost like a a cloud feature. You know, like Amazon has load balancers. We have access proxies, and all my apps just go behind those. Once they're behind those, it's that component that deals with authentication, authorization, encryption, and kind of the policy mastering, right? So the security team. Uh, you know, most large enterprises have kind of a information uh, classification document, right? They say people's personal phone numbers are, you know, classified as low, but any customer data is high. And if you're accessing something high, you have to have MFA'd within the last hour. And, and so, generally, this is there's like a NIST matrices that like describes this, and it's like basically looking at confidentiality. You know, impact availability, yeah, like all these these different factors, and then you grade them on like low, medium, or high, and sort of yep. if it's highly, you know, needs to be highly available and it's highly sensitive, then it's like it's it's like classified as high, you know, like sensitive data or something. So yep, and that that's like most companies have some kind of classification. The reason they classify is actually to derive policy. Right, and uh, your CIO or CSO, if you work at a big company, is signed off on. Hey, high means this. You know these types of documents, and it means the, we have to use these access policies. And so, that's what the access proxy really enforces. Is as an app owner, I just need to classify my thing. It's low, it's medium, it's high. Right, like I, I have customer data in there, or no, I don't have any customer data. It's like it's the lunch menu. Right, that's my role as an app owner. I, I classify my data. Then the security team can say, okay, great. For everything high, these are our policies. For everything low, these are our policies. For low, you know, the, the cafe menu, we're going to let you log in on your hacked Android phone. Like, we just don't care. It's the login, you know, the cafe menu. 
But the thing with customer data, you have to be on a managed machine uh, that's managed by IT. It has to be, have been patched within the last day. Uh, you had to have MFA'd within the last two hours. Um, like all those kind of policy decisions can be driven by the security team based on the information classification. And that sort of logic is living in the access proxy. Yeah. I mean, part of, I think, doing BeyondCorp is you have to kind of understand your resources in a way. Like it's kind of a resource aware system, right? The resources are not hidden here. Like you kind of need to know, because one of the things you want to do is you also want to create an audit event of Grant logged in to the finance system, you know, uh, 48 hours before we're announcing earnings and then bought a bunch of shares of stock. Like you actually want to know that. You want to audit that. So the auditability is also related to having kind of a resource graph. And then the benefit is there's no VPNs. You're putting that access proxy on the public internet most of the time. Yeah. But part of that is also just centralizing responsibility. How I tend to think of it is it's like if you have one team that makes is good at running one thing on the internet, like it's way better than having a hundred teams running individual things behind a VPN. Right? Like in, in most organizations to deploy Beyond Corp, there's like a small number of people who are actually responsible for kind of their access proxy equivalent. Okay. So it's a shared resource across all these different teams and they're able to a center of excellence. I mean, to use a sure a big company word. Okay, and this is used. I mean, primarily for employees to access internal tooling. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the origins kind of started. I mean, it's where Google described in their white papers. It's all about employees and contractors. But even some of our customer base, it's like if you acquire a company. You know, and six months later, you're trying to get them access to random things. You don't want to give all five thousand people that other company access to your VPN. So, it, yeah, it's employee access, contractor access. But I think in the context of like, what do you trust? What are you trying to assess about person? How do you classify information? How do you classify an access attempt? You'll see in the consumer side that this this already exists, right? Like how fraud detection is done for credit card transactions is already like not trusting your IP address very much. Right? They know that the bad guys can fake an IP from San Francisco. Right? So in the consumer world, a lot of these concepts about how do you derive trust, do you trust a factor more than another, already exist. You know, like Google does it in Gmail. If you fly to Hong Kong, it's going to ask you to MFA again. Right? Like consumer products already deploy a lot of these techniques. And they just we're kind of like taking the IT version of it and making it more employee centric. And then, I mean, taking advantage of some of the, you know, you have more control over the environments that your employees compute and access things with, right? So you can use accessing an internal tool as a impetus to get someone to apply a security update on their laptop or on their phone, right? To update the latest version. Yeah, I mean, I, I view it as like uh, self-remediation whenever possible. Uh, is helpful, uh, and Google published even some numbers about this. I think in their one of their later um, white papers, that you know they saw I think a thirty percent reduction in help desk tickets, and and that's just about having the context what the user's trying to do, right? Like when you're on a VPN, like your VPN either either successfully connected or didn't, and so there's very little room for like helping a user be like, hey, we're not letting you into the wiki today because you know you haven't updated uh, to the latest iOS. Like in the access proxy world, you can actually 
return to them an HTML page that says, hey, here's what you need to do to go fix it. Yeah, so instead of every application needing to do that same thing, it's like just put that in front of, you know, even accessing the load balancer, you need to hit this access proxy first, which does this sort of like coarse-grained access control to verify that like you've got the latest system, you're, you know, we know who you are, and then you can start to go into the, like trying to access the internal resources. Yep, that's right. Cool. And so, you know, one of the other things that I think is really interesting about this from like kind of stepping back out of the details of BeyondCorp implementation is ScaleFT's sort of adoption and flag carrying of this topic. And I think, you know, when I look at enterprise software companies, one of the important go to market techniques is sort of this like movement based marketing, right? Where you want to create a movement in order to get other folks to sort of sign on to what you're doing. And like you guys didn't work at Google, you didn't write the Beyond Corp papers, you didn't do that, but like you took the flag for Beyond Corp and you really brought it to life in an ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, from a startup point of view, it, it's an efficiency argument <laughs> at some point. You know, like you're always going to have less capital than uh, some public company you're kind of competing with. Uh, you're always going to have less people for a long time, right? And so my belief on movements are, is you get kind of a spin wheel going, right? Where, you know, initially it's really hard. Like you're, you're trying to do your first meetup and like three people show up. Like that was our first Beyond Court meetup. And we're like, okay, how do we get 10 people next time? How do we get... People are interested in this topic. We know that people are interested in the topics. You know, some of them follow me on Twitter. How do I go get them to come to the meetup? Right? Like next time 10 people showed up, next time 50 people showed up, right? Like it builds upon itself. That's why you want a movement, right? Like, so in theory, that two years down the road, you know, your cost of acquiring a customer is lower. Um, that you are known for something. And part of that, I think, in the context of enterprise software is, you know, customers. They need both a need for your thing and they need to know about you, right? Like you can make the best damn, I don't know, some container product right now or best service mesh thing in the world. But if like it has one star on GitHub and no one knows about it, it just doesn't matter. And so I think the movement thesis we had was um, yeah, we got to make some good product. We got to make it be interesting. We got to fix actual security problems. But when an enterprise realizes one, they have a need. And they do all the time. I mean, everyone's always redoing their VPN architecture or deploying a new app on EC2 or, or whatever. They have to then, too, also know about us, right? They need a friend that said, hey, did you read that BeyondCorp thing? Or did you go to a meetup about this or see some tweet about it? Like, they need that first intro to your kind of ecosystem. And uh, a movement and movement oriented kind of enterprise software, I think, is a pretty efficient way to do that. Yeah. And I mean, you did a few really interesting pieces around it, though. Like one is you literally adopted it from Google, right? Like you took their white papers, you built a website around it, you like published it. Like I mean, yeah. Like you didn't probably have permission to like create the website and stuff. You probably just did it. I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, we did it, and I mean, we knew one day Google, and they did. They said, "Come, come visit us," you know. And and you don't know, like, are they going to be angry or uh, happy, you know? And I think in Google's case, you know, they're just. Uh, there are many different parts of Google, and some parts are really excited, and some parts are confused. Their marketing team was like, "We were going to do that someday." 
Right, someday. And then the people who actually worked on Beyond Carp was like, that's cool. Like, we're happy to see more people like this idea. Yeah. You know, and, and I think for us, we just tried to keep it really clean. Like, we weren't trying to be slimy. We were just trying to be like, look, this is a good idea, right? Like, Google gave it a word and described like how they did it. How are you going to do it? Like, how are you as a, you know, a Fortune 1000 in the Midwest, like thinking about these problems? Like, trying to frame it in, like almost a iterative model, like Google's an example of it working. That was where we really try to frame uh, a lot of our kind of content marketing is, you know, Google shows us that it can be done. They showed us their vision of it, but you're not Google, you know, like you have way different constraints. Um, you don't make Chromebooks, right? Like Google has some advantages here. So how are you going to take some of those core ideas and apply them uh, in your own business? Right, like that's kind of like right-sizing the message in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's just an interesting way to do it, right? To say like, hey, look, Google wrote a white paper about it. We think that's really good. It fits. Like, you didn't like start a company around the Beyond Core paper. You sort of like had this company going. You realized the thing that they were publishing was pretty much in line with what you were doing. Yeah, and something that you said before we started recording was that it it helped you kind of establish context. Right, so like, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as a startup, you're always like told make your elevator pitch, right? And what is an elevator pitch? It's it's really a compression of uh, what you do. You're trying to like have one sentence. You know, we're Uber for microphones or something. Like, what does that even mean? You're definitely not Uber. You know, they're like valued at 100 billion dollars and have tens of thousands of employees. So you're not making microphones that are like Uber, right? So you're trying to compress it down, and. Um, what we found is like Biancorp was a pretty good compression word for us, right? It compressed down like, how are you actually thinking about authentication, authorization, and encryption? Like, how do you actually implement that? Are you doing it in this old school way? Are you doing it in this new school way? And if someone talked to us and had already read the white papers and we said, yeah, we're like doing uh, Biancorp style stuff, but for DevOps, it was a super easy conversation. Right, it was a great compression word that just got us over the hurdle of like, no, we don't need to explain like why uh, static passwords are bad. You know, for the first thirty minutes of the meeting, right? It lets you just move really fast, and you need things like that as a startup. Uh, your time is really valuable, and also assessing if a customer is ready for you, especially in the enterprise context, is so important. Right, like the worst thing is to like work with a customer on and off on the kind of enterprise timeline. And then, like a year in, they're like, "Actually, guys, you know what? You're just way too far out there for us." Like, you want to find people who already read the paper, already believe in what you're doing, and are like, "How can I bring that into my big company?" You know, that is a huge leg up, like down your funnel. That's a great point. Yeah, you create this aspirational sort of thing, and like they did a great job of naming it. The papers are really helpful. It puts this new concept in. It does it in a very like academic, googly way. And then you can say, look, like here's the first steps to implementing this, right? Yep. You know, we viewed Google as like, you know, not to say Googlers are certain ways, but like Googlers are like summiting Everest. Okay. Like they're like, they're way out there, man. They're like, they're summiting Everest without any oxygen. Okay. Like we're going to help you get to base camp. It's beautiful up there. It's still something to look at. It's still like way better than where a lot of people are. Like, let's get you there. Yeah, you're not gonna like build your own hardware and like rack all of your own, you know, machines and like recompile every bit from the ground up for everything you compute on, right? Right. 
but like we can make it harder for like when an employee you know leaks their password for bad things to happen. Yeah, right. Like, and we can do we can use this new architecture to do that. Like, take care of the things that actually happen a lot that like we don't have great solutions for, and make that a like, hey, here's the first steps. Yep, that's right. Okay, so you take this thing, you you, you get it moving, and then you get acquired. So now you're inside of inside of Okta, which is a publicly traded company. Yep. And Okta's core business is sort of around kind of single sign-on SAML concept, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, they call it an identity cloud, but yeah, I mean, you kind of nailed it. Like, it's, uh, I kind of summarize, it's like growth engine for many years was, uh, how do I SSO into Salesforce, which is a great growth engine because everyone was buying Salesforce. Right. And I think the team from Okta started at Salesforce. and That's right. Yeah, the founders are both from there. Maybe even like, there's. I know there's definitely some pieces of like the SAML protocol and SKIM protocol, which is like written by Salesforce. So they helped to kind of lay the foundations for these things too, right? Yep. Okay, so now you're inside of Okta and like, what are they doing with your product? Or are they going to scale it out to more customers? What's happening? Yeah, it's an interesting process. You know, you, you go from a, a startup mindset of like, you know, frankly, how do I get one new customer at a time, like, or two at a time, or, you know, how can I go to a conference and meet the right people to like, how do I arm a thousand, you know, salespeople with the right thing? And how do I scale this to thousands of other existing customers, right? Uh, and so there, there's technical scale challenges, like, you know, you have to grow up real quick. Thank goodness for the cloud in general, it makes our lives way better. You know, there's a lot of collateral challenges. Like, how do you educate a lot of people? They know about SAML, they know about SSO, but they maybe don't know about BeyondCorp very much or about, you know, how privileged access management has traditionally been talked about. You know, so like there's a, a big mix of kind of scaling challenges there that, that hit throughout an organization. I just kind of had this realization that maybe SAML was. How you interacted and got access to external applications. Do you think about BeyondCorp as how you get access to internal applications in Zero Trust? Yes. I mean, yes. I think the summary version is yes. I think what we're learning, though, and this is one of the reasons Okta acquired us, is they wanted to take many of the techniques we were doing for internal applications and apply them to external applications as well, where uh, the access proxy. In the same way that SAML works, right? Like you want to take all the device context, uh, self remediation, real time awareness, uh, dynamic policy stuff that you had in kind of this internal world, and still you still want to apply it when you log into Salesforce because it is a again back to the CSO's worldview. They're just marking things as low, medium, or high, right? If Salesforce is high, you need all the same policy enforcement there. So. Yes, they're just both ways to enforce policy, but I think we're learning from the BeyondCorp world how to make those things exist in kind of the SAML SaaS world. Oh, interesting. So the lessons from that internal and access proxy for, for internal resources, taking that and applying it to how you access external resources. Yep, and you want very similar outcomes. So, and this is like, also as companies are modernizing, right? Like, very few companies build everything themselves. And at the same time, very few companies are 100% SaaS based, right? Like almost everyone has both. Yeah. I mean, you know, I obviously think that the world will continue to leverage internally hosted applications on a VPC that you secure with BeyondCorp. And I think you'll also access 
external applications that you you know yeah integrate with SAML and there's probably some combination of the two technologies that happens now with you know like Okta and you guys together so yep that's right that makes a lot of sense okay so what i want to dive into though is i think there's this really interesting piece around you know go to market from a startup perspective you're like okay we got to build this movement and we got to get a few people to believe the thing that we're doing and like create advocates and get 10 people to show up to the meetup and like be very like brute force and how do we l- create something from nothing right 0 to 1 0 to know? 1 right yeah. all day long and now it's like okay we're inside of this bigger organization what do we need to do like process wise to systematically enable this organization to be successful with this product that we've built. Yep. Right. Yep. And so like, what does that look like for you right now? Like what, like tell me about that process. You know, you have to kind of align to how people already consume content, right. Or how organizations already work. So like a lot of what we're doing is like aligning to, you know, the big beginning of year sales kickoff right now, right? Like how do we, Go into sales kickoff with everything figured out, so that as a salesperson, they're like fully enabled, you know, to really hit all their accounts with it at the beginning of the year. So first of all, that's like that sales kickoff is sometime not in 2018. No, yeah, it's a different timeline yeah. than as a startup. You'd be like, what am I doing, like on on Wednesday? Yeah, right? exactly. Like, You're planning three months out at minimum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. everything's like that. Uh, and that, but look at this because you have salespeople in Australia or where you know, like. It's a different type of scaling, you know, and it's good. Like you can get a lot of leverage out of it, right? I'm excited about that. So yeah, so so we're trying to like align to ways they already consume information. You can't force them to do new things. You can't be like, we're gonna do sales education differently than the rest of the company. You know, like no, you you got to do whatever the process is. You know, and what does that process look like? So it's sales kickoff. What do you need to deliver for that? So all kinds of collateral. I think. It's, I mean, I think it's. Not, I can't emphasize it enough. You know, like battle cards about how you stack up against a competitor. It's like context setting slide decks. Like you've never heard of anything in Beyond Corp. Here's like a, a level one deck. Here's like a level two deck of like a little more in depth. You know, here's a level three of like really, really in the weeds. Here's how you enable like uh, people at the edge to listen for the right words. Like what are the things a customer will say to be qualified? Like how do you qualify them? What, what are they going to say? What are they going to? What problems are they going to describe? They have to know that this product is the right fit, right? And if they say that, what does that person then do? You know, do they bring in a specialist? Do they say, hey, we're going to connect you for thirty minutes with a specialist next week? Like how does that whole thing get rolling? And really trying to turn that into you know, just like highly repeatable in a way that like I think as a startup, you kind of hack it until it breaks. You know, you don't really have the luxury sometimes for this. I think when you kind of are dropped into a big system, right? I mean, so first of all, like, like battle cards. You said that, <laughs> so that's that's how you stack up against a competitor, like a yeah. So you you would um, generally you describe you know kind of their pros. I mean, to be honest, like even yourself, because you're, you're it's an internal document. Generally, you're not necessarily giving this to a customer. You know, someone who in in our case we do a lot of kind of privileged access management. A lot of our salespeople spend time on on what you call traditionally IM market, and they're worried about Active Directory. You know, they don't know about how some of our competitors really work, so they need a you know almost like a one pager or two pager kind of fact sheet. Like, here's what our comp- this competitor is good at. Here's what they're weak at. Here's how we stack up. Here's how our roadmaps are different. Trying to really summarize information so that that person, when you know they're on the phone and someone says, "Hey, what about X?" Like 
they need to have an answer. They can't just be like, well, I'll get back to you in like two weeks. Like it's a whole different sales experience. They say, oh yeah, I know about X. You know, look, honest salesperson here. You know, we're a little bit better in this area, uh, and we think our roadmap is way better. You know, you can disarm a lot of kind of customer concerns very quickly by being knowledgeable. And so you want to build that for people that may not spend every day, you know, reading about Beyond Corp. It's kind of scaling that knowledge graph. So it's kind of like you could answer every one of these questions like that someone might have about any of your competitors, any of your roadmap, yeah. technology, everything else. It's just it's like pushing that knowledge to the edge to the people that are talking to customers regularly in order to scale like all of the your knowledge into the rest of the organization in a way that they're used to consuming that information. Yep. So that it's easy for them to pull out the battle card and review it before the call. Yep. And look, it's not a perfect process. Like you'll get questions that get pushed up like, hey, customer X just asked, you know, how are you dealing with TLS one zero deprecation? And and like, well I didn't put that in the FAQ because no one ever asked yet. You know, so there's some work you can do ahead of time, like you know these things are going to pop up, and then there's always just stuff that you know you didn't know someone would ask. I mean, stuff that you have answers to, or you can figure out the answer to, but yeah, um, but generally you're trying to capture all that and enable people in a way that they can then have those conversations and feel successful and stop having to like because there's going to be some amount of stop and go, right? Okay, you know the level one deck, then the level two deck, and level three deck. You're not going to go through all of those in a single meeting, but like right. you want to have it sort of escalate correctly where at least the first hundred people can go through level one, and then maybe there's you know 20 people that can do level two, and there's 10 people that, uh, that do level three, yep. right? Yep. It's kind of subject matter experts, depending on how you phrase it internally. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's not just about enabling that sales team, though, right? Like, there's other organizations that you're enabling along the way. Yeah. So... Like support might be one. Support's a great example. You know, I think, especially in enterprise context as well, uh, especially for you know, Okta as a product is authentication related. So like, if Okta is down, you can't log into anything else. So you have to be good at support. When a customer calls on the phone and says, "X Y Z user can't log in," I think it's your fault. Like you need to figure out real quick if it's your fault. And if it is, fix it, right? And communicate clearly and accurately with the customer and update your status website and all these kind of processes that are built as a company grows, right? Like the first time that happened, you know, there wasn't a great process for it. So as a as a product that's getting jump started into this, you know, you kind of start with like like even at ScaleFT, we had most of our customers on Slack channels, like shared Slack channels for both support and kind of uh, technical onboarding. You know, in a, as you get bigger, that's not great. Like you can build tools in the Slack. We had all kinds of Slack bots that would track SLAs and are we getting back to someone fast enough? But like they're used to working in shifts and having tickets and like and having queues that they work through. And like that's like a much more at scale approach to support. And so we have to go into their world again and say, hey, you know, we're gonna start with let's use your tools. Let's get our team on your ticketing system. When a ticket comes in that's related to uh, our products, phase zero, and this we you know basically started with is like, we'll take the ticket. We'll try to f- figure it out, just as we would a Slack request from one of our, our original customers, right? And then over time, you try to layer in like, okay, you know, there were eight tickets about you know some feature. Let's write a little knowledge base article about that, an internal article, turn that into an external documentation as well, and kind of processize the whole thing. And eventually, you know, you're not handling basic questions. And eventually, they become harder questions. And then eventually, they're like, you just end up getting bugs, which is great. You know? Yeah, because I mean, unless your support team can fix your bugs, which should be pretty. That'd great be great too. too. Okay, that's that's super interesting. I think that 
the idea of taking something and enabling these other organizations with or teams within your larger company to do the specialized thing that they do is really important, right? Yeah. And that's I think that's a big part of product. That's what we kind of have to do is be able to walk and talk between all these different organizations and make sure they have the things that they need. And we facilitate from engineering into these yep. other orgs to make it successful because our previous company got acquired and we were rolling it into this bigger company and working with all their systems. And at first you don't want to let go, but eventually you kind of just have to. It's the only way you you get sleep at night is by hooking into their knock yeah. and their, you know, all these other like systems. And the other funny thing is like just how similar the structure is at like every enterprise software company, right? Like everybody has like some type of GA, general administrative, you know, that's your legal and mm-hmm. some of these in finance. Yep. And then you have your sales team and your marketing team and your support team and customer success and product and engineering and QA and you know it kind of goes on and on and like the, the interactions between those groups if you run infrastructure maybe you have a devops or ops team and you know it's always the same and like the the funny part is the i i've found that the people in those roles often have the same conflict across different organizations right yeah the, the the natural tension that lives between product and you know sales in every org you know yeah or between sales and marketing but it, it's also about scaling it right like that is how you know engineers go off for two months and build a feature and don't have to check with everyone and the rest of the company all the time and the same thing with sales is like they're gonna go off to Milwaukee for two weeks and like try to get a big fish. You know, uh, and and try to to uh, land a customer, and they're not going to be involved in every single thing going on in the company. You know that you have to kind of let people operate on their own, and that just leads to natural kind of goal drift, and you know, just differences of short term goals, especially. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I think we think about sales enablement and these other pieces, but like, I mean, are you still managing your own infrastructure, or have you handed that off so that there's? <laughs> uh, we have meetings about that often. Uh, right now, we're still running our own infrastructure, our own DevOps team. Actually, one of our leaders last week was like, "You know, yeah, we didn't have our own finance team. You know, we were a 15-person startup. We didn't have our own finance team. Like, we, so we should definitely use like Octa's finance team, right? But we had our own couple of DevOps people who are really good. Like, maybe we build a little nucleus there and like, keep growing that little group into their own DevOps team. You know, and I think that's the same thing with our sales team. We had uh, two salespeople at ScaleFT at the time we acquired and. Like they're becoming our kind of specialist overlays for our product across many other salespeople, right? So it's kind of almost like for each one of those ores, you kind of figure out like what are you going to keep independent and kind of run as its own way, and what are you going to kind of you know take kind of the bigger company's existing processes. And I think it's it's just org by org and case by case and size of your group, you kind of decide. I don't think there's any hard or fast rule. Yeah, you know, no matter what. You're kind of making some of these decisions as a startup. You're like, oh, we'll outsource our finance. We'll, yeah. you know. Oh, I mean, one of my co-founders, uh, Robert, were like, hey, Robert, do you want to do like basically support and customer success? Like, you know, just for like six months while we figure it out, and we'll we'll hire someone to do customer success. You know, in a while, like just because you know we're all busy and like. So he's an engineer, and we're like, he's like, sure, I'll do support and customer success for six months. We're you know we'll probably hire someone in six to eight months, and and go from there. Well, 
it was like nine months. We hadn't hired someone yet. And then we got acquired. And then like, he's now the support guy. And he's like, well, no dude, he's like a, an engineer with like 20 years of experience. He's not the support guy, you know, like he's a founder, like let's get him back in engineering. But like, oh shit, he has to hand off and scale support knowledge before we really get him back, you know? Yeah. So it just says never take the support role for your co-founders. <laughs> it's, it's a risk you don't want to take. Yeah. You're going to end up running support. I mean, that that's just, you know, I think how a lot of founder stuff ends up being, right? But it's also so important because if everyone does the sexy, cool job, it's like you're never going to do anything. Yep. You have to put really smart people in charge of the monotonous, grinding, like hard tasks like doing support really well or doing yep. infrastructure well or like doing any of these pieces like, you know, I mean, QA, right? Like these, the funny thing is these are the hardest roles to hire for because engineers want to do engineering things. Yep. As we were hiring engineers, the engineers got to do engineering and the founders got to do all the other stuff. You know, that was our, our first four engineers basically just worked on engineering. And then all that did was free up founder time to like do other stuff, not engineering. Yeah. I think that many times founders don't really realize that that's the sort of life they're going to live is like you start a company maybe because you love building great products and you right. have this experience and you want to see something come to life and you maybe you build the first version of it and then eventually you're handing off all of the like stuff that you thought was fun and you're diving into like how do I scale a customer success organization and a support yep. organization and yep. like a sales team and you know go raise money so yeah or how does pricing work or you know like a thousand questions. Yeah. You got to learn how to, I mean, but as you get bigger, you're also trying to recruit and find people to take over those things too. It's, you know, it's not a, very rarely is it permanent, you know, but like for that next six months, you are customer support or you are, you know, in charge of finance. That's just kind of how I think of it is you kind of like specialize in something for a while and then try to find the best person you can to take it over. Yeah. Real quick, just changing subject onto the, I'm going to take a guess on how your acquisition happened. I have no idea if this okay. is correct, but I just, based on my knowledge, I'll see if I can nail it. I'm going to guess that either you or they reached out in sort of a partnership-y type of idea. You spent a little time specking out what it would look like to build something together, and then eventually they were like, we should just buy you. That is directionally, yeah, how it went. I mean, I think okay. what what happened with us is, I would say we and it probably took a while to negotiate the deal, oh, yeah. but at some point it happened forever. Uh, yeah, uh, but we kind of started out with uh, our pipeline, right? Like, you know, when we started, we didn't have any customers using Octo, but as we were getting bigger, I think at one point we had like seventy percent of our pipeline was like already an Octo customer. Like, we could ask someone, and they're like, "Oh yeah, we use Octo." Oh wow. Especially on enterprise, like the bigger the company got, the more likely they were already using Okta, and that was kind of the overlap that I think drove some of the deal. Is like we were talking to very similar buyers, and even if it wasn't the exact same person in the company who bought Okta, they like sat next to the person who bought Okta. And had you created some type of integration first? Yeah, like we you could log into our product Okta. We were doing like skim integration with Okta. So a lot of protocol level integrations. You're one of the four companies that have implemented Skim. I see. Yeah. Uh, if you want the Go bindings, uh, we have an open source library for that. Oh, cool. So you know, obviously, it, the enterprise ready site talks about 
how to implement single sign-on. And Skim is this protocol for actually like provisioning and deprovisioning users based on in like the SAML world, right? Yeah, uh, and, and group objects as well. Right. Groups are probably actually where it gets more interesting, right? Because then you can do kind of delegated permissions. So just getting users there is like okay, but like when you start doing groups is where people find the value. Oh, interesting. I mean, the reason that I always thought it was that it was valuable is because sort of single sign-on was never really like populated user tables. It right. wasn't designed to. It was designed to like get you into the thing. And so if you had a user table, like how did you know who was using it, like and what they were doing? And so people would do something called like just in time or real time provisioning of users. Yep. Which was kind of a hack. And then like you didn't really like ever deprovision that user. You just sort of like let them not log in anymore. Right. And actually, I mean, the context of scam I think is going to continue to be more important as you think about um, a lot of privacy regulations and other stuff. Like, you actually need to deprovision a user when someone leaves a company. Like, you can't just keep their data around. Like, so I think in general, you're going to see more protocols like this because you know just keeping data forever is not not cool. Yeah, I mean, and it just makes sense to like not have users around after you had like they don't work there anymore. So yep. you know, you want to kind of. Move like because oftentimes you seat based pricing and things like this that become you know a reality. Okay, so we're back to like the the acquisition. Yeah, the reason I suggested that is because you know oftentimes people will ask me like, well, how do we sell the company? And it's like, well, like my opinion is you don't just like go sell the company. You like build a relationship with potential acquirers. You start to figure out like what's interesting for like an integration, a business development deal. Yep. And eventually, like they kind of realize that like the thing you're doing is very complimentary, and maybe there's an opportunity for them to sell it to their existing customer base. Yeah, like the value is like the thing that you have. If they can go sell it to all of their customers, it's worth a lot more to them than it is to you. That's right. I mean, that's that's the uh, the board deck. At some point, is like we're going to pay quote low price for them now. We're going to take their thing. And sell it to four thousand people by the end of next year, or whatever the you know the exact numbers are, and that's like using their existing salespeople that you're going to go educate, right? Like that's the argument is that that they have a an efficient way to sell your product, actually, right? And yeah, and you th- often at a higher price, yeah, and faster and bundled right? and and all the contract yeah. mechanisms and you know like Okta has their SOC two type two report, like we didn't as a startup, like that's actually a barrier to a lot of our deals. You know, so I think, you know, a larger company just having things like compliance already done, right? It makes deals easier. Uh, having already the contracting done, already went through procurement at a Fortune 500. You know, like those things matter a lot. They're barriers. They're what makes doing a small enterprise startup really hard. And so big companies kind of skip those. So if your product's in the right place, they can see a lot of value in it. Yeah. I think when we got acquired, the company that acquired us literally sold our product like three weeks later for like a hundred x the price that we were charging. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, you know, we weren't charging enough, obviously, but like they were able to really turn it around and and start to make more money faster. And so, you know, it's just easy. And like when you think about the enterprise value that you each have, it's like, well, in their hands, your technology and team is a higher enterprise value than if you keep it independent, at least today, right? Yep. And like, you know, I, I think to your point about, you know, how do you get acquired? It's like a long thing. I mean, we knew people at Okta for uh, well over a year before the deal happened. You know, like it wasn't an overnight thing. But, you know, you, you also want to be out there. You want to meet people in your industry too, right? Like, I think 
one of my my good friends and co-founder Jason was like he had no fear like calling anyone from any other company and just saying hey you know we're scale here's what we do you know and like you need kind of to be out there and saying like call your competitors talk to them go have beers with them like they're people too you know it doesn't need to be a big you know you're not not enemies so go go meet the people in your industry yeah i mean it's particularly true for the bigger companies that are your potential acquirers in the end right because you know even though it's it's like not a popular topic like it's important for founders to have relationships to know what their options are, right? You're not right. building this thing to get acquired, but the idea that you understand, just like you know who your next potential venture capitalist might be, it's yep. good for you to know who your next potential you know, exit might come from. Well, it's not about the exit in my mind, it's even just like understanding how they think about the market. Like if they're like, oh man, we're we're only doing FedRAMP and government customers now. Like I'd be really scared, you know. Like what do they know about the market that I don't know, you know? Like it's just like market research, and like people are people. They'll you know they'll tell you what's going on. Yeah, I mean you're right. So it's it's the advantages you get from spending time with them in person, understanding how they're thinking. You kind of get to formulate your opinion even more yeah. on other smart people who see the market and see everything else that's going on. Right, and and if you ever are, you know, in a situation where you're getting acquired, like those kind of decisions, you can't just you know email corp dev at microsoft.com and get an answer back in like twelve hours. Like, are they interested? Like, you need, to your point, you need the relationships if if it ever does happen. Yeah, it's just one of those things that it's not talked about a lot, but I think. You know, part of the goal of this podcast is to talk about the things that don't get talked about, and you know that's one of those pieces where I think you just have to be thinking about it a little bit, know who's out there, because it's also like you know there's companies that you might want to acquire. You might raise your next round and think about acquiring, and yep, that's who's thinking about acquiring them as well. So like you should be kind of just constantly in tune with that side of the of the equation. Yep, cool. So so what one thing if you're if you're up for it that I've had a handful of guests do, which has just kind of been fun is I just would love to hear how you pitch what your product does and why it's important to people, yeah, it's actually hard because I'm like in the middle of like repitchizing it to like how Octa would approach the problem so for for scale of t like I would say like pre octa right like we started with how old is your s s h key right especially if if you're talking to a devops person or a sysadmin, you're like, how old is your key?" Right, and they're like, "Oh, I don't know. I generated it like two, three years ago." You know, and you're like, "Are you sure? Like, can you prove that to me? How old is your coworkers?" You know, like, and they're like, "Oh, actually, you know, I don't know." Like, and then some people are like, "Oh yeah, my key's like eight years old," and you're like, "Well, wait a minute. So you've had a key for eight years? Have you had the same laptop for eight years? Have you ran untrusted software on that laptop in eight years?" And the answer is like, "Oh yeah, I've had like four laptops. One of them was stolen, you know, and I run untrusted software on there all the time." And so like, you're like, "Great." So you have this thing, an SSH key. That's the key to your kingdom, right? Like you statically install it on a server, and given that private key, you can log into that server. But you have no way of testing to where the key's been, whose laptop it's been on, uh, who else has it, right? Like as an attestation of identity, it's really bad, right? So what does Scale do? We move that attestation to be a dynamic, real-time thing without static keys. We make that from a static problem to a dynamic problem, and that's that's really what we do. Is we make key management and access management a dynamic policy-driven thing. Perfect. That's great. Also, I like I 
acknowledge and love the challenge of like, you're like, oh no, I'm in the process of repitching it in this new context. Yeah. Right. That's hard. Like we're, we're going through it replicated like a, a sort of, I call it product extension where we're, we built this new thing and now I'm trying to tell the pitch and the story in context that includes that new thing, yep. which like from like a hundred feet away might not seem like it's consistent with what we do, but like when you kind of hear the whole story, like, oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yep. But it, it like takes a lot of effort to craft that message in a way that like is consistent and makes sense with like this larger organization, right? So yep. as like a side note, I would like potentially just talk about how like internal authentication, like in- oh. internal app, uh, you know, versus external and like you're kind of bridging those two worlds or something about yeah, that. I, mean, now. I, don't, I don't know. Especially in the context of Okta, that I was just trying to get to is like in the context of Okta, that is 100% the story, right? Like yeah. it's, it's, we're taking uh, this dynamic policy driven world, applying it to both internal resources and external resources in a consistent way Using you know device trust and MFA and U2F tokens and driving user adoption of those things. So like Oct has all these features for like uh, w- workflow around enrolling a U2F token and getting it verified by your IT team that it is a valid U2F token. Like those are kind of the features that that drive outcomes for customers. And um, for that's what I was trying to say. Like the Octa worldview, this is exactly what you said. It's 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 taking internal resources and external resources and putting them on an equal playing field for how you do kind of policy driven access management. Yeah, that's cool. It's so funny. Like those two pitches are so different. Yeah, but like the same product. Same product. You know, because because yeah, right. what does the product do? Well, it does some crypto, some RSA operations. You know, it's hilarious. Like the delta between two. Pitches for the same product, just like the context, right? Back like matters so much, and like how do you want to frame it? And like what's the future? And like what's this? How's it going to work together? And you know, it also I think it is also a signal to like what you're going to be doing more of in the future. Yep, because it it kind of gives some some like oh okay, well like that's the problem we're focused on, and you know, and so this solves it in this way, but like you know that's the problem is a little bit different than you know sort of. Uh, SSH key replacement. That's right. That's right. And it's also the difference between you know trying to like win over like one engineer and one sysadmin to like get your foot in the door as a, like a small enterprise vendor and kind of a more holistic long term relationship story, mm. right? Which I think you can as a larger publicly traded you know, enterprise software company you can have that story, but as a, a small startup, they're more worried about you like going away. Like you almost don't want to tell a big story. You want to tell like a really small story, and they're like, "Well, worst case, we can replace it," uh, which is kind of, I think, a, a difference of scale. You know, that's funny. So you think that it's at a a smaller company should be cautious about telling too big of a story when it comes to customer conversations because the risk is just gets too big. Yeah, the risk is way too big, and 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 enterprises are risk adverse. I mean to. Not to oversimplify it, but they are. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting, and that's why I mean, like that's also why open source is just a uh, adoption mechanism, right? Like, it's lower risk because it's open source, right? Like, because oh, worst case that startup went away, you know, even though we were going to pay them for the open source thing, like it's still going to be open source. It's a, it de-risks a, a large enterprise. Yeah, it's it's very true. Like that idea of what happens if you go out of business, like was like 
always a very common question in the early days of Replicated, partially because we were telling a big story around like how we were enabling the future of enterprise software within this organization. And then you're right. And like, maybe that's, maybe it's better to like tell a smaller story and then expand over time. I do have a favorite moment of that when it, when finally someone asked, instead of what happens if you go out of business, they asked like, what happens if you get acquired? Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is, oh, how the tides have turned. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. are no longer worried about us dying, <laughs> worrying about someone buying us. Yep. Cool. Paul. Thank you so much, man. This has been a real pleasure. I, I really appreciate all of your insight on Beyond Corp. It's funny, like we have to spend so much time up front getting the context, right? Like, yeah. you know, hopefully for a lot of people, you know, over time, that concept, like the context is compacted into that one statement and people get it. But hopefully this is that thing that'll help them get that in the future. Yeah, I hope so. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.